Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. a special bonus episode of Character Creation Spotlight, everyone. In this bonus episode, we shine a light on up-and-coming games to keep an eye out for. I'm your host, Amelia, and today I welcome Jason Morningstar of Bully Pulpit Games to talk about the new edition of Fiasco, a game about criminal activities gone terribly wrong, which is kickstarting right now and is already funded as as of this recording. Jason, welcome to Character Creation Spotlight. I'm really excited to sit down and talk with you. Oh, thanks, Amelia. I'm really glad to be here. Can you start off by telling everyone a little bit about yourself, um, the projects that you're working on right now? Sure, I'd be glad to. So, uh, as you said, I'm Jason Morningstar with Bully Pulpit Games, and uh, I am a full-time game designer uh, operating mostly in uh, tabletop role-playing and live-action role-playing spaces. So I'm making games all the time. The the uh, one that is getting the most attention right now and the one that I'm best known for is Fiasco, as you mentioned. But I've made lots of different games and lots of different uh, formats. Uh, and I also do some uh, consulting for using games in education and for teaching and learning. Oh, that's really cool. It's an area that I'm really interested in right now. Oh, no kidding. Oh, cool. Well, we can nerd out about that, too. Yes, absolutely. I have two younger kids, um, and I'm always fascinated by the things that I can teach them through games. We got to talk to Alex Roberts um, when she was kickstarting Starcross, and that was a conversation that we had, too, about games teaching things like consent and creative thinking and things like that. Like, it's so exciting to me, all the things that you can do with these games that aren't really, like, rules, but open up so many more opportunities to think about yeah. things in different ways. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you can teach lots of pro-social behaviors as well as critical thinking and uh, obviously like hard skills as well. So yeah, I, I love games as a, a way to uh, sort of get into uh, into that mindset, into a learning uh, mindset. And uh, I've seen really remarkable examples of uh, using play to teach uh, particular skills or overcome particular problems. Um, and I'm happy to nerd out about those, too, if you want. Yeah, absolutely. I think at some point on our list of episodes, I have one about like teaching and learning concepts in games and especially things like empathy and stuff like that. So yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I'll have to reach out to you at some point again. <laughs> so one question that you mentioned you wanted to talk over before we dive into things particularly about Fiasco 
is what kind of stuff we're playing right now. So I, I think you're right. This is a good way to get to know people. So you're the guest, so I'll let you start. Oh, I, I have to tell you first? Okay. You do. That's great. I'm much more interested in what you're doing. But uh, so I'm in two weekly game groups that don't always meet every week, but that's sort of the goal. And in one of them, we just finished playing Kids on Bikes, where I was sort of a Veronica Lodge mean girl named Ashley, who was sort of the nemesis of the of the crew, but also a part of the part of the group. And uh, that was great fun. Um, and uh, I, in my other group, we're playing uh Basic D&D. We're playing 1983 Moldvay Magenta Box D&D, and I'm playing I'm fourth level now. I'm a fourth level fighter named Apajan. So that's uh, that's what I'm up to, and it's really fun to, in that case, revisit uh, a, a much older game with much different design assumptions. That's a lot of fun. How about you? What are you doing? Um, so I just came back from Gen Con, obviously. So yeah. I tried out some stuff there. Well, I shouldn't say I don't know that I really tried out a ton of things. I played things that I like. Right now, I've been really enjoying Descent into Midnight, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse game, um, which focuses on it's you play in an alien world that's underwater. So it's never been touched by humanity. You do a lot of world building. You make up your own species. You make up this corruption. Um, we spent, I think, probably three and a half hours of our four-hour session just doing world building. And I would be perfectly happy if that was the whole game. The game itself was <laughs> a lot of fun, but I would be happy to just sit around and make characters and do world building all day. Yeah, that is, that's a good time. Yeah, I love it so much. And it's just, especially when it's collaborative and seeing what other people come up with around you is so much fun. Yeah, I love being surprised, surprised by that. Yeah. <laughs> I just sat down with my mom and my sister earlier this week and we tried out For the Queen by Alex Roberts, which was a lot of fun. That's Neither of them game. have played a role-playing game before. So that was what, new what and a interesting. perfect introduction. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So that's kind of what I've been up to lately. Well, that's that's awesome. I'm sorry. I was at Gen Con 2 and uh, played a mess of stuff uh, there. Uh, it sounds like we both had a really good time at that show. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We are here to talk about Fiasco. This is an abridged version of our podcast. Normally, we do um, three episodes going through the entire process of character creation and talking about design and things like that. We are going to just smush that down into one episode for now. So we are going to start with our section that we call What's in a Game. Can you tell me a little bit about the setting and the inspiration for Fiasco? Sure, I'd be glad to. Fiasco came out of a very specific set of design parameters that I set for myself that were based on some dissatisfaction that I had with the kind of play I was getting in 2007 and 2008. And the experience that I had was that I would often go to game conventions and end up having some downtime because all the games took four hours to play. And I really wanted a game that you could play in a couple of hours that was uh, shorter and sort of more to the point. I also wanted a game that didn't require a lot, didn't require a lot of prep. So you could just sit down and play, tell a complete story that was very satisfying in that time. And with those parameters in place, I, I started thinking about what kind of game I could make and throwing out anything that didn't meet those requirements. So what I ended up uh, realizing was that it had to be something that people were pretty familiar with, that it had to be a sort of a genre 
uh, that people could, you could say, it's like this meets this. You could do an elevator pitch. People would immediately know what was up and uh, could immediately jump in. So by saying this is a, it's like a Coen Brothers movie that you can play in about the time it takes to watch one. Uh, that seemed to work pretty well. Uh, and then uh, there was a lot of playtesting. We playtested it for a year and a half uh, pretty heavily. Um, and just I just kept cutting it down and paring things out. And I'm happy to talk about the that process as well if if you're interested. But um, basically, we we started with something that that very closely emulated uh, the sort of cinematic language uh, of a neo noir caper film. And as we developed the game, I kept cutting pieces out. I, I kept throwing. Uh, bits of it away because it took too long or it wasn't productive. The fiasco used to have a third act, for example, and now it has two acts uh, because the third act was unnecessary to sort of give the narrative uh, frameworks that, that I needed for the game. Uh, so that's that was the inspiration and the, the process of bringing it to, to life. I, I do want to talk a little bit about that playtesting process because that always fascinates me. I I have just kind of maybe started to tip, dip my toes into game design, which I always swore I wouldn't do. Like that was a bridge <laughs> too far. I could play role playing games and I could make several podcasts talking about them, but I was not like that's too nerdy. I'm not going to design oh, a game. Um, <laughs> oh, and now here I am, like. Oh, I've spent so much time now, like looking at mechanics and kind of figuring out the balance between what the mechanics ask you to do and how that makes you feel at the table is incredibly interesting to me. And so I'm wondering what that part of the experience was like for you, um, kind of trying to figure out what things that you needed to take out or add in to get that kind of like quick and um, sort of chaotic feel. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I had the, I think with Fiasco, I had the advantage of asking players to do something that was inherently transgressive and delightful, which is uh, play to fail, right? I'm, I'm asking you to embrace a character who is dumb and is going to get in trouble, which, which is sort of flipping the script on most role-playing game uh, setups. Most games are all about being competent or, uh, or uh, gaining power over time. Uh, and, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, being a badass and doing cool stuff. And I, Fiasco asks you to, to fight against that. If you play Fiasco that way, it is boring and you will fail. So, but if you play it with a sort of gleeful eye toward destruction to do everything you're not supposed to do in a role playing game, then it's really, really fun. And so by, um, effectively communicating that to people, uh, I was 90% of the way toward uh, achieving the sort of tone that I wanted for the game. And then it was just a matter of making sure that the mechanics and the um, sort of the fictional inputs in the game really supported that. So uh, you'll see the tilt in the in Fiasco, there's a tilt, which happens after Act 1 and before Act 2, so when the game's about half over. And everything in the tilt uh, is pointing you toward more chaos and more bad choices. It, it's, uh, it's sort of telegraphing expectations for the latter half of the game so that even if the first half was pretty straightforward and people were sort of struggling to embrace that chaos, in the middle of the game, as a designer, I'm giving you 
wild animals, and I'm giving you important things that are suddenly on fire, and I'm giving you misdirected passion. Uh, and, and they're just uh, narrative inputs, and I'm saying this is important, you have to do it. Like it's the rules of the game say that these things that you choose are now important and you have to respect them. The game can't end until we see something precious on fire, if that's what you picked. And um, so like that's just a little nudge. It's just the the, the gentlest nudge uh, to get people to to uh, sort of actualize that tone. And it's it's very successful because people want to. It's cathartic and it's fun. It's uh, it, like I said earlier, I think it's a little transgressive. And you found people were kind of receptive to that i because i always think i guess from my background i played with people who were very averse to Mm -hmm. failure like they didn't like to fail in games and some of that is sort of that old school mentality of it's the players against the gm and like they're trying to undermine you and so you have to win um and you have to win your role-playing game Uh, so i'm wondering like how did it take a little bit for people to kind of lean into that or were people really excited to try that right away well i think in some ways it's uh the game acts as a filter so a lot of people for whom it's just not appealing aren't going to engage with it and that's fine um and there's this sort of uh, uh highly competent uh, thoroughly effective us versus them uh, confrontational kind of play can also be really fun and i don't want to talk that down because obviously like i'm playing D right now and that's pretty much what it is right so yeah. like you know every game is is set up differently and has sort of different uh a different social contract and that's totally great so so the first answer is most people who for whom that's just not something they want to do filter themselves out they're just not going to play and that's fine there's sometimes uh i've had people come to the table particularly at conventions who really don't they don't get it or they're not comfortable with it or they're worried that um, unless their characters are hyper competent, that other people are going to be mean to them or that uh, they're going to laugh at them or that there's there's just something there that makes them uncomfortable. And uh, very occasionally those folks don't get it and they end up playing a pretty boring game of fiasco. But more, more times than not, uh, those folks come around and usually by the tilt, the, a light bulb goes off and they realize that the game is more fun if it's played as intended and that if they're a little more vulnerable with their character, m- more interesting and fun things will happen. Uh, because you can play, there's nothing in the game that's going to prevent you from uh, completely succeeding at everything you want to do. It's just, it's not that interesting. Um, so yeah, it's I, I've never had a real hard time with it. Very occasionally there'll be someone who uh, doesn't doesn't get it or doesn't want to get it, but that's very unusual. Yeah, I mean, and there's definitely a point where it's like I always say, not everything is for everyone, so it's okay if it's yep. not your jam. Um, I feel like that has to be really gratifying though to see those people kind of like to see that light bulb I, moment I where people are like, "Yes, I love it." Here's a fun anecdote about that. One at Gen Con many years ago, uh, I was running into games on demand, and so like I never know who I'm going to play with. It's always strangers, and uh, they might not know anything about the game. And for one games on demand slot, these four bros showed up, and they were they were all friends. <laughs> And they were all real, like, just kind of meatheads. That was the sort of feeling I got. Uh, and I was like, oh, geez, these guys are not going to get it. They're not going to like it. They're not going to. It's just this is going to be a real drag for two hours for everybody. Uh, but they wanted to play Fiasco. And so um, I set them up and uh, 
I set up a four-player game, and I said, you guys just, I've taught you how to play. Now you have fun with it, and I will check in with you periodically. Uh, and that was sort of my way of, like, not really getting too involved in this situation. Um, and I, I had kind of written him off. And then, which is, that's not cool of me. I shouldn't have done that, but but I did. Uh, but when, but when <laughs> they came back, they were having the best time, and they were playing the game absolutely right. Like they they had uh, they had embraced it, uh, they were playing it uh, joyfully and with this you know real sense of dark humor uh, and just having a wonderful time. And I was so gratified to see that. And um, uh, I think it uh, it was a great experience for them. And I don't know if they you know if that converted them to be to play weirder games or if they went back to the, the games that they were more familiar with but um at least for that moment they were super into it and doing great and i was so i was proud of them they did such a nice job and uh i i was uh i was ashamed of myself for having written them off so sometimes that happens too yeah well it sounds like it was a good experience for you then too totally. to see that like hey other people everybody can do this <laughs> yep it absolutely was yes it very much was I want to talk a little bit about what's different in this new version okay. that you're kickstarting right now. So the original, I think, came out in 2009, yep. right? Okay. Yeah, I did it. <laughs> um, thanks, Google. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about what you've learned in the intervening years that kind of made you want to make a new version? Yeah. Um, so I played this game a lot over 10 years and I still enjoy it. I've never stopped wanting to play it, which is, um, which is remarkable because I have other games that I really don't, I'm done with. I don't want to look at them too much anymore. And uh, Fiasco is not one of those. It's always fun. Uh, so like this, the bones are good. It's a, it's a solid game and the classic version is going to stay in print because it really delivers a different experience. What I found though was that there were some barriers to entry related to the game, principally that, um, People would purchase the game and then they would have to find 20 dice in two different colors and they needed index cards and Sharpies. And it was just a lot for people who are not already gamers. And it's a game that has broader appeal than that. So that always kind of bothered me. Um, I always knew that the game could uh, reach beyond like the indie role-playing scene, but that there were some barriers to that. And I saw that a lot. Um uh, so I, I wanted to find ways to, to make the game a little more accessible. Um, and some of that, uh, uh, it occurred to me that I could really use some social engineering to do that. So uh, if a game comes in a box and it comes on cards, even if you don't really understand what role-playing games are, you know what a game in a box is supposed to be, and you know how to use cards. And that's a comfortable format for many, many people. So my, my first thought, actually really early in the in the process after the original fiasco came out was that a card-based version made a lot of sense but at the time i was like ah, i don't know the part of the fun of the game is that a playset provides you with 144 different different options uh, 144 different things to think about um and uh you know, that was part of what was good about the game, and there's no way that I could have that many cards in a game, and I wasn't convinced at the time that it would work with less. And it turns out that it does, and all I needed to do was really sort of test that hypothesis, but for a long time, I just didn't have the time or inclination to. So uh, so that was one of the things that I, I wanted to change. I wanted to make the game more approachable. 
Um, and at the same time, I wanted it to be a little bit faster. I've run it a lot. I can run the game uh, editing it aggressively. I can run a four-player game in two hours easily, but a lot of people can't. Um, and I think two hours is a good sweet spot for asking someone to try a new activity. So you can say, well, you know, we could go see a movie or we could try this thing. Uh, if we try this weird thing and you don't like it, we will never talk about it again. But if, <laughs> but if you like it, that's two hours. It's worth it. Um, whereas if you say, hey, you know what? Um, can you come over to my house every Friday night for the next year? And we're going to spend four hours doing a thing. It's just a little, it's a different kind of uh, cost-benefit equation for a potential new player. And uh, so I wanted it to be as, as punchy as possible. Um, and there were some other uh, things related to uh, related to sort of roadblocks that I had seen that I wanted to fix. One of them was uh, that a lot of people were using the game as a teaching tool and that the playsets don't provide a lot of flexibility in terms of content moderation. So we got a lot of people writing or talking to me saying, I'd really like to run this at my library for a bunch of 13-year-olds, but I can't because it's full of profanity and sex and drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that was uh, something that uh, I thought a lot about as well. So a number of different things made me realize that maybe it was time to, to think harder about it. Plus, um, it was going to be the 10th anniversary, you know. This year's, it's been around for 10 years, and um, it seemed like it would be a good opportunity to do something fun and new with it. I had the opportunity to talk to Steve Segetti about it at okay. Gen Con, and he kind of ran me through some of it. And I was really intrigued about it. I haven't gotten to play the original one. It's been one of those, like, I always look at it at the game store, and I'm like, I should do this. And then I haven't done it yet, because I don't have a local group, really, to play with. And so, and between the podcasting and playing, it's like, once a month, we're doing great. But I was really excited about this one because, partly because of the cards and because it comes in a box and everything, um, I've been trying to slowly get my family to play RPGs with me because we do like a monthly game night and I'm like, this is my chance. So I'm really excited about the option here to be like, it's a role playing game, but also it's not. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not making you because you pull out a book for like D and D or something and it's 200 pages and everybody goes, those are all the rules. Like it's not a pamphlet of four pages. I'm not interested. Sure. And so I, I like the idea that this really kind of bridges that gap and I can bring other people in and say, it's okay. Like it's, I don't know. It's less threatening almost like <laughs> it doesn't feel like such a high barrier to have a handful of cards or, um, and I think the openness of RPGs is really, kind of daunting for new people coming into games. It's like there's there's too many choices and you don't know where to start. And so I think from what I've seen of this one, it feels like it it sort of eases people into it's like your your gateway kind of bridge between board games and RPGs. It's very much the intention. The game comes as a fold out board. Um, and you don't technically need the board to play, but it tells you where to put all the pieces that you're going to need, the tilt elements and the aftermath uh, elements and the cards and so forth. So like it looks like a, a board or card game, which I think is reassuring to people. Um, the other cool thing that I'm really excited about, and you mentioned your family, uh, is that you can tune the playsets. So because it's on cards, you can look through the cards and say, I'm playing with my mom. I don't want anything related to sex. Or I'm playing at the library with 13-year-olds. I don't want anything related to drugs. And you can just take those cards and put them aside, and the game still works fine, which is obviously much harder with the old version or the classic version and uh, the pl printed play sets. 
so I'm hoping that that will be a, a sort of a value add for people as well. And when you mentioned uh, sort of the possibility space being overwhelming, uh, you have less choices to make in this version. And I think that it's good. Uh, I think that uh, it, imp- it actually improves the game in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that definitely helps too with that with that kind of time block thing that you're talking about too, like trying to fit it in that two hours that I think being less overwhelmed by choices kind of streamlines some of that too, because there's not as much like waiting and thinking and it's like, okay, I know exactly what I'm doing and how to do it and we can just get it done. Um, And it is less of a commitment and less of a, you know, just like I said, less daunting too to go into it and say, you know, we're going to play this for two hours, which is the same amount of time as it takes to play Monopoly, probably if you play it correctly, which no one does, (laughs) because nobody likes Monopoly. And if they say they do, they're lying. Um, (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about characters in this game, because that's sort of our our area of specialty on this show. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what types of characters you can make with this game. Yeah, so the the one of the things that's a little different about Fiasco, or at least was definitely different in 2009, and you, you see it more now, but um, at the time it was pretty it was pretty fresh, is the idea that you're creating relationships before you're creating characters. So in Fiasco, you're choosing relationships uh, between characters as part of the setup of the situation. So for example, I might take a card that says, Co-workers, office scapegoat, and the one who's really to blame. And I'll put that between you and me. And at that point, we know that one of us is the office scapegoat, and one of us is the one who's really to blame. We don't necessarily know which is which. Uh, and it's it's going to become dependent on what cards are placed between us and the people on the other side of us. Um, but before we'll really know what what the those how those relationships gel and solidify. But because we're pattern matching animals and our brains naturally find these connections, it's almost like magic the way it falls out. So like in that situation, it's going to become really apparent which one of us is the scapegoat just based on the relationship on the other side of them. Uh, and we'll, we'll, uh, realize usually, and if not, we'll, we'll talk it out and, and make a decision. Uh, but, um, you're, you're creating these relationships before you, uh, you're actually figuring out who your characters are. Um, so with that in mind, um, the, uh, the possibilities are pretty endless, uh, and all the, uh, um, all the cards point toward interesting combinations. So, uh, for example, let's say that that was you and me, uh, you, your character and my character, we know that one of us is a scapegoat and one is really to blame, but we don't know which is which. But then on the other side of you, uh, the, your relationship with another player is suits, the middle management boys club. And then the other side of me is romance, sleeping with the boss. Now, all of a sudden, we have more information about our relationship based on these other relationships. So if I'm sleeping with the boss, I bet that I'm the one who's really to blame. And I mm-hmm. bet you're always in trouble, but you're also part of the boys club. Somehow you're middle management and uh, you're constantly getting in trouble. I mean, that would be my first impulse. Um, but maybe it's the other way around and we would talk about it and make a decision uh, about that. That's going to really define who we are. And and uh, that happens before we make strong statements about who our characters are. And so are the, the kinds of relationships you have then based on these play sets that you have? Are they kind of like varied based on what you're going to be doing in the in the yep. different sets. Yeah, the idea there is so the example I just gave you is from a playset called Business Casual, which is sort of like the movie Office Space, just sort of a dystopia, you know, cube farm kind of horrible setting. Um, and so all of the relationships are pointed toward 
conflicting or interesting or complicated relationships within that kind of an environment. And uh, Poppleton Mall, which is another place that has relationships among people who would be at a shopping mall. So you've got like shoplifter and clerk and you've got, um, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the mall Santa and an elf or, you know, those different kinds of relationships you see uh, at a mall. So, yeah, every place that's the relationships strongly point toward theme and tone for that particular setting uh, that you're that you're working from. Another thing that I, I have to tell you that I really like about these play sets is that the backs of the cards have names on them. Yeah. Um, any of our regular listeners will know that this is my biggest struggle, and I don't know why I started a character creation podcast when I have no ability to name characters. Oh. Um, I keep a couple of baby name books at my desk so that I can <laughs> so that I can handle this. Um, I was really excited that there are names on the back of the card, so I don't have to do it. That, well, and again, this is uh, this is returning to the theme of making a game that reduces handling time, it makes it easy for you. All the things that are going to be complicated or difficult are just, they're there for you. All you have to do is think about the fun stuff. Uh, if you want to name your own character, obviously you can, but if you don't want to, there's lots of cool names on the backs of these cards. Uh, and everything in the new version of Fiasco, in my opinion, is like that. We're really taking the, the load off you in those ways. And I have to say, Amelia, that uh, I love names and uh, I've got tons of name resources for you. And maybe after the show, we can talk about names. Um, I actually edited a whole book of names that uh, might be useful to you. Oh, that's amazing. I, I think my problem is always that I just get like analysis paralysis where I'm just like, there's too many choices and I don't know where to go. And I also like when I do campaigns and things, I'm very particular about finding a name that like exactly fits just so um, like <laughs> okay. the meaning and the sound and all that kind of stuff. So having yeah. to do it quickly on our show has been just brutal for me. Like I think my last campaign, I spent like three months agonizing over what this name was going to be. Oh no. And I can't do it in like five minutes. It's so hard. <laughs> okay. I hear you. Well, I, hopefully Fiasco will help with that. Yeah, I was really like, I, I know that that's not a good thing to have as a favorite part, but it was. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's great. And I'm glad that you noticed it. And I'm glad that it would be helpful to you because that's really what it's, you know, that's why we did it. I want to ask too about, you, you mentioned that it's really heavy on the focus of like relationships between characters, which I do think is a really it's an integral part of this genre um, is, you know, why these people do or don't work well together. But I'm wondering why or kind of like where that came from for you. Is it just because of the genre and the feeling that you were trying to evoke? Is that something that you personally enjoy in games or from your experience writing yeah, that's games? That's a great question. Um, I think it's a little of both. So if you look at neo-noir as a genre, of course, it's about people who have these strong, uh, usually very tight relationships that are also stressed and in conflict, right? So I, I knew that that had to be part of it. I knew that there had to be a reason for people to make bad decisions. And bad decisions come out of things like love and money and uh, family. And so I wanted to make sure that those were pushed really hard in the game and that you had the opportunity to build these impossible situations that were just primed to explode. That was a piece of it. Uh, but that's the kind of play I love too. Um, so like when I'm at the table, I want to have interesting relationships and I want to have complicated uh, and tough situations to, to make choices about. I want to make like my games. I, I like to think of them as hard choice generators. You know, they're, they're all 
built around the things that I enjoy, which is, you know, shades of gray, conflicted loyalties, trying to make ethical decisions in an inherently unethical environment. And um, you can see that again and again in, in my work and uh, because that's what's fun for me. So this is really a fiasco is really a sweet spot where the thing that I love anyway is essential to the way the game plays. And I think that's as a game designer, that's a good place to be working. I really enjoy those kinds of games where there's there's no right answer. There's no like you no matter what you do, you're going to kind of walk away going, "Ooh, is that yeah, the right yeah. choice? Those are like those are the best kinds of games to me. And I know that, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, no, I just want it to be fun. And I want to know that I'm doing the right thing. And for me, that's not the case at all. I very much like to walk away being like, hmm, I wonder how it could have gone <laughs> if I'd made the other choice. Yeah, totally. Yeah, me too. I really, yeah, I really like that you have like the needs and um, objects and things to kind of put along with those relationships. We talked a little bit about like how the relationship thing works, but there's also these needs that you can kind of attach to the relationship that sort of complicate it. So I know that there are ones that are like, um, I know there's a romance one that was spouse, um, and then you can add these other things on top of it that just further complicate that relationship. Yeah, like an example of that. So let's say you are uh, you middle. You're in the middle management boys club, and you're also the office scapegoat. And attached to the, to one of those relationships is the need to get respect from corporate by laying off half the staff. It's like it writes itself at that point. You know, we we know who that character is and what the pressure is going to be in the game for them because they have this impossible burden that's not going to go well and it's they're going to mess it up which is great yeah i really like those kind of messy combinations too and i i i enjoy um inner party conflict a lot Mm -hmm. too i like when i get to play off the other people around me and kind of um push some of those buttons too which i i wonder how that works at convention games when you kind of have people that don't know each other well are they like as into pushing those buttons as groups that know each other well? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, I think the answer to that is uh, sort of a qualified no. So like when I play with my local crew, we all love each other and we've played together for years and we know that we can go really hard. Um, And also we kind of know what's going to be fun for each other. Um, Mm -hmm. So like that's, and that's a recipe for a really good game. So like if I sit down to play Fiasco with my crew, we're going to have a good time no matter what, guaranteed, just because we love each other. Um, when you're playing at a convention, that's not necessarily guaranteed. The game itself is still going to deliver uh, a, a similar experience, but you don't necessarily have that love and trust at the table. Uh, and uh, so I work to to instill that a little bit, like at the beginning of a convention game, regardless of what I'm playing, I have a, a little talk that I give uh, about that very issue and uh, asking people to be vulnerable and to be kind and to listen and to be respectful and to, to think about what's going to be really fun for everyone else at the table so that they can trust that everyone else is going to do the same for them. And what I find is that by setting that expectation that people rise to the occasion, uh, which is, I don't understand why that is, but if I say, and I'd say this every time, here at Table 16, we trust and love each other. Uh, that's how it is, uh, and we're going to operate on that assumption for the next two hours and have a great time caring for each other and having fun. And people are like, oh, okay, I guess that's how it is at Table 16. Cool. And then they do, and it's great. I, I don't know why that works, but it seems I think to- having that permission to 
not even I don't think you necessarily always need that rule, like need somebody to say, okay, you have to be nice. Mm -hmm. But I think there is something to be said for like having permission to acknowledge when it isn't nice. Because at least for me, that's the space where I start to get uncomfortable is not so much like what I put out, but what I take in and whether I'm allowed to say like, no, thank you. I don't want this. Oh, absolutely. You know, like, how are people going to react to that? So I, I think having that kind of speech at the beginning gives people sort of the understanding that like you as the person running the game are are setting that rule and I don't have to set it for myself. Right. It's true. And, and part of that, of course, is uh, talking about safety tools. So like. You know, I, I set the expectation about how we're going to behave and then talk about um, how we care for ourselves and each other and, and we, how we use an X card, if that's what's going to happen at the table uh, or whatever other tools are appropriate. Um, for convention play, typically I, I let everybody know that the door's open and they can leave at any time uh, and that we're going to use an X card and then I demonstrate that. Have you seen like a big kind of shift in... Um in people leaning into that, like from the beginning to the end of the game, I feel like that would be the part that would be most exciting to me is like kind of seeing people be a little unsure how to act on those complicated relationships. And then by the end, be like neck deep in it and <laughs> like having those kinds of crazy interactions. Yeah. Um, well, in my experience, uh, sometimes a table needs a little while to warm up um, and sort of get to understand uh what's happening with the, with the people around them and um sort of gel uh, and often that takes one round uh, one set of scenes around the table so four or five scenes into the game everybody's fully engaged uh really excited about what's happening and has a really good idea of what the, their personal trajectory might be um uh, so, yeah, I don't know that it takes a long time. Sometimes right from the beginning, people are like, oh, this is amazing. We know exactly what's going to happen. We're very excited. And, and uh, it just, they hit it off. If that doesn't uh, happen halfway through the first act, it usually does. And if not, by the tilt, they're, they're into it. That's cool. Because I was wondering about how, you know, because you're running it in a shorter session, if it gives people time to kind of find their, their groove. But it sounds like yeah, think- just the way it runs that people... People figure it out pretty quick. I think so. The, the game provides you with lots of scaffolding. So even if you don't know what to do, you can look back at the cards and, and oh, there's a need here. I need to get respect. I forgot about that. How am I going to set a scene where I try to get respect from corporate? Or, oh, wow, uh, there's an object on the table trapped in the trash compactor with a bichon freeze. Uh, how am I going to bring that into the game? And then it gives you, you know, a little bit of uh, support. Uh, in terms of uh, creating these things. Yeah, and for me, that's always kind of the sweet spot in games is where there is enough room for me to work within, but there is still kind of a clearly defined space that I I can exist in. So I know what the boundaries are and what the limits are, but I still have room to move around because I think games have a tendency to be like there are games that are really, really open and kind of puts a piece blank sheet of paper in front of you and says, have fun. Mm-hmm. And then there are ones that like, you know, down to every tiny detail of here's how you tread water. And uh, this has like that kind of sweet spot in between where there's enough things that I can pull on to make up a story, but I don't feel like suffocated by it. Yeah, I I think uh, just from that description, that's exactly what Fiasco does. I think you'll really love it when you get a chance to play it, Amelia. Yeah, I'm really excited. We have, um, I think, game night next week. So we're going to we're going to see if I can con everybody into playing (laughs) it. (laughs) That's very good. 
I know we got a little bit off topic there. That's okay with me. That's that's an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, it was a fun conversation. Um, Is there anything else that you want people to kind of know about the Kickstarter that you want to highlight about the game that we haven't talked about? Uh, So not really. I mean, I would encourage your listeners to go check out, check it out. Our Kickstarter is pretty bare bones. We're not making a lot of extravagant commitments to elaborate new things because we really want to focus on delivering a quality product sort of on time and under budget. Uh, Mm -hmm. So uh, it's uh, it's a good value. Um, You get a lot of cool stuff and there's more cool stuff uh, coming. So there's not really anything special that I want to talk about other than um, encouraging people to to go look at it and and see if it's uh, something for them. Yeah, I did see that you can you can get the physical game and the digital game right away too, like a PDF of it, which is always really nice for um, when you want to read through things and you're not home. Or I, I like to have both because I like physical things and especially this one with the cards. But I, I like to have the the electronic versions of things. Yeah, I think um, like you you'd you'd have to be pretty dedicated to want to cut out all the cards and, and play it from from the print and play version. But some people might, and that's fine. But you can certainly get a feel for the game by uh, reading the the PDF version before before the print one shows up. I'm very excited about this. I'm I'm excited to see what happens with the Kickstarter. I know I looked yesterday. I haven't looked today, but I know yesterday you were like 840 percent funded or something. Yeah, so it's doing great. It was, it's uh, definitely doing well, and I'm really happy and grateful. For yeah, that. I'm excited to see where it goes and to see like what other kind of play sets come out too. We got a we have a whole plan, a whole pipeline of cool new stuff. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Like that's probably got to be the hardest part. Is is saying like okay which ones do we put out when and because i'm sure that you all have like a million ideas of things that would be super cool (laughs) especially having 10 years to kind of think about it and there's hundreds of play sets out there in the world that other people have written and uh like it's an embarrassment of riches there's lots of lots of uh possibilities so yes that is a constant uh discussion behind the curtain well thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me about this do you want to remind everybody where they can find you, how they can find this game, um, anything else that you're working on you want people to know about? Sure. Yeah. No, I would just say, uh, like, uh, you can find me on uh, I'm on Twitter at, at J-M-S-T-A-R, at J-M-Star. Um, uh, Bully Pulpit HQ is our uh, Twitter account. Um, you can find the Fiasco Kickstarter on Kickstarter, and our uh, company uh, address is bullypulpitgames.com, which points to all this stuff. Well, thank you for sitting down with me. Best of luck on this Kickstarter. Thank you. This was really fun, Amelia. Yeah. I'm really glad we got to Yeah, talk. absolutely. I'm excited about this. I'm excited for people to hear it. Um, but thank you for joining me, and thank you to everyone for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Character Creation Spotlight, like Character Creation Cast, is a production of the OneShot Podcast Network and can be found online at www.charactercreationcast.com. Head to the website to get more information on our hosts and guests, or even find some of our character sheets. Character Creation Cast can be found on Twitter at CreationCast. I'm one of your hosts, Amelia Antrim, and I can be found on Twitter at GingerReckoning. 
Music for this episode was used with a Creative Commons license. This episode was edited by Amelia Antrim. Further information for the game systems used and today's guest can be found in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And remember, we find that the best part of role-playing games is character creation. So go out there and create some amazing people. We'll see you next time. Design Doc started as a podcast about designing a role-playing game. Over the years, it's turned into so much more. It's a show about the challenges of burnout, making money from creative projects, and what goes into bringing a game to life. Come along with Hannah and Evan in a living documentation of the game design process. One review described it as the audio equivalent of taking a hike with a good friend. You can search for Design Doc on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.